Hello, I'm Melinda Fellner, Chair of Carter, Ledyard, and Milburn's Tax Department. Welcome to Tax Tete a Tete. As the name of the podcast connotes, I'm going to be bringing you head to head tax discussion on topics with super minds in the space. In this episode, part five, we'll be discussing S corporations. Tax fans, it's Melinda, and I'm here with Vinay. Navani, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Melinda? I'm good. We're going to talk in this segment about S-corporations, aptly named because they're organized under subchapter S, right, of the Internal Revenue Code. So what's an S-corporation? Well, let's talk about it from a corporate perspective first, then we'll talk about the tax mechanics. So basically, an S-corporation is going to be formed in the same way that you would form a C-corporation. The the main difference is that you file this election under the Internal Revenue Code to be treated as an S-corporation. So same corporate documents. It's really just a tax filing. And why would you do this? I mean, well, we'll talk a little bit about all the requirements because I don't want to get too technical, but an S-corporation basically can give you the benefits of being the formality of a C-corporation, but the benefit that you get from a partnership or an LLC tax as a partnership, that all the profit and loss and so forth basically flows straight through to you on a K-1, so one level of tax, subject to certain exceptions that we won't go into all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a neat entity for that reason, but... uh, Well, we'll talk about this also a little bit later, that my personal view is it's a little bit of a dinosaur, but we'll talk about that later. So, well, what do you think of that? Melinda calling it a dinosaur. Yeah, so I'm going to push back on that a little bit because there (laughs) are a a lot of negatives associated with S-Corps. We can talk about them. But but the thing that I like about S-Corps is they're simple. And when we, if you listen to our discussion about partnerships, we talked about all the flexibility but all the complexity that came along with partnerships. So if I have a situation where I have one person, maybe two, where everything is being split 50-50, S-corporations are just a lot simpler, easier to administer. Um, So for that reason, I don't hate them. What I will see is, and I've seen this recently a few times, in M&A transactions um, where an S-corporation shareholder was selling the you know, the S corporation was being purchased by an acquirer. You know, you, you mentioned, Melinda, that there are requirements to be an S uh, corporation. One of them is that you can only have one class of stock. Mm-hmm. And I've seen situations where maybe the company wasn't completely um, airtight in how they managed kind of their corporate governance. And maybe one year they gave more money to one shareholder than another, and they fixed it, you know, over time. Um, or, or anything like that that would make somebody question the one class of stock requirement. And buyers have had real issues with that because buyers don't want to buy something that they think is an S corporation. And the IRS comes around a year from now and says, no, it really wasn't um, right. an S corporation. And now there's all this corporate tax that's due and the seller is long gone because you are buying a corporate share. You know, you're buying the shares of a corporation. So, so for that reason... I see, you know, that becomes a major sticking point that buyers um, really lose sleep over the validity of the S election. Absolutely. Well, I'll just jump in here and say I just had that very issue that there was potentially 
in the past, payments made. So, well, let's step back for a second. So one requirement basically to be respected as an S corporation, that one class of stock is that basically everybody has to have pro rata distributions, right? You give an extra dollar to one shareholder, potential. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but that's potentially a problem. So in this deal, in this acquisition of this S corporation, that was the thing is that the acquirer was nervous that things that had happened in the past that potentially blew the S election. And that is a very real potential problem with S corporations that could turn into an explosion of double tax instead of one level of tax. So that is the main reason why I use that dinosaur reference. Yeah. That, so so, you know, so I, and, I, I get that. I've seen it firsthand. I think sellers tend to, and you know, apologies for turning this to an M&A discussion, but sellers tend to dismiss that um, concern yes. and buyers, especially larger institutional buyers, are obsessed with that issue. Yes. So, um, but so putting that aside, um, yeah, there's a there's a there you know as flexible as partnerships are, there's a lot of inflexibility with S corps. Everything, as you say, has to be per share. Everything's got to be allocated pro rata. You can't have flexible capital structures. If somebody's putting in a hundred dollars as capital and they own fifty percent of the shares, the other person has to put in fifty dollars right, of right. capital. So a lot of things like that. Um, you do see people, um, especially on the internet, kind of tout S corporations for payroll tax savings. Um, the idea being that as an S corp, my my distributive share of S corp income is not subject to payroll taxes. Um, the IRS takes a pretty aggressive view that an S corporation shareholder needs to pay themselves a reasonable salary, so you can't get away with paying yourself zero from an S corp. Right. Um, and so in my experience that once you once you factor in a reasonable salary, that difference as you know the difference in the payroll tax that you're saving is generally not material. And kind of the the other benefits of the flexibility of one of the other types of entities kind of outweighs that benefit. Right. I agree. And that's an interesting practice point also is that oftentimes you have clients who say who know about this and say you know, oh, don't pay me any compensation. Don't pay me a salary and want it all in distributive share. Right. And that's an invitation for audit. And that's a no-no. And so, I mean, invitation for audit. And as we all know, there's a huge body of case law on that reasonable compensation issue for S-corporations. So right, that right. is a big we, which, issue. Which is just coincidentally is the flip of reasonable compensation in a C-corp. Right. In a C-corp, the IRS doesn't want you deducting too much. Right. As compensation on the guy. And so taxpayers are arguing that, no, it's not too much. Whereas in an S corporation, the IRS's bias is paying your, pay yourself a higher salary because of the employment tax angle. So exactly. you know, just, just an interesting dynamic. Um, but yeah, so so I will see that being touted as one of the, the benefits of an S corporation. I To me, it doesn't really right. move the needle too much. Well, because I think it's a it's a cocktail party item, right? People will talk about the cocktail, but like, oh, I saved all this money being in an S corporation for self-employment tax reasons, and it's not really right. As long as as long as you're over the FICA base, which right now I forget what it is, 130, 140,000. It's the Medicare tax, which is you know the employer piece is 1.45, and the employee piece is 1.45. Right. That's really what you're saving um, on the payroll tax side. Much harder to give equity compensation with S corporations 
right. for the one class of stock rule. We, we often see phantom shares used in S corporations, meaning that the employee is really getting doesn't have legal ownership. They have kind of hypothetical ownership, and whatever payout they would get is really straight W two compensation. So, in in that respect, S corps really have some of the a- aspects of of partnerships in terms of their flow through. And, but they're legal corporations, right? If I go to the state of New Jersey and look up a corporate, uh, look up a corporation, I have no idea whether they're a C or an S. That's a function of the election that corporation has made with the IRS. Right. I thought we could just talk a bit more about the requirements because let's face it, there are some pretty, you know, I don't want to call them heavy, but there are some requirements that you have to meet. Otherwise, you won't be able to make this election. So, I mean, to me, the most important of which is you have a limit on shareholder amount, which you won't have with these other tax entities that we talk, we are talking about, and that's now 100 shareholders. So if it's going to be any sort of entity with over 100 shareholders, you can't make this election. That's one thing I wanted to note. Also, you can't have non-resident aliens as shareholders. So what I mean by that is if you have a client who comes to you who is a citizen and resident of the U.K., that you cannot have this kind of entity. So, I mean, for you and I who do a lot of this foreign tax planning, that takes this entity off the list of potential. Right, and I've had situations where I've had S-corporations started where one of the shareholders is temporarily in the U.S. on a work visa, like an H-1 visa, and then at some point they leave and go back to their home country. Now they've been gone from being a U.S. tax resident to a what we call a non-resident alien, not a citizen, not a tax resident. And at that point, the you, you basically busted your S-election, as we would say. Right. Excellent point. And that's a big problem, as we talked about in another segment. Busted S-election means double tax. No good. Right. We don't like that. Well, and also that makes me think of the fact that to be an S-corporation, so you form yourself, as we said, as a regular C-corporation, but you do have to file this form to affirmatively elect to be treated as an S-corporation has to be filed timely. And Melinda, what's the form number? What is the form number? Wait, this, don't, this is your uh, okay. question of the day. Um, 8868? No, no, no. no, no. 2553. Oh, my goodness. Two five. Does everyone get that? 2553. Thank you for that. <laughs> but I'll tell you something. So from my perspective, I've been involved in a lot of cases where that form is not timely filed. Mm-hmm. And you have to go back and either qualify for that automatic relief, which you can in some cases, or in some cases even go to a private letter ruling, right, which right. we don't it's, want to do. It's, it's, it's a hassle. Yeah. Best, so, case. Best case, it's a hassle. Absolutely. So file your form on time. Right. 2553. I'm not going to forget that, Benet. Okay. So you've got to file that affirmative election to be treated as an S-corporation. Actually, here comes another form, which Benet will know the number, but I won't. So an interesting thing from an M&A perspective also is uh, an S-corporation can have a subsidiary. This is something that's relatively new in the law, isn't it? Uh, Correct. It is relatively new. Right. Um, Again, flaunting my age. But so uh, an S-corporation can form a subsidiary, and then if it makes an election to treat it as a qualified subchapter S subsidiary, basically that subsidiary is a disregarded entity. So it's an interesting M&A thing that you can do also, and we won't get into it, but I see it a lot with 
these S-corporation inversions that a lot of people are doing. Correct. Correct. So what's the form number, Vinay? You know, you that's the form number I don't know. Oh, I stumped uh, I, him. I, I, I think when you were talking about the 8869, I think either that's it or it's got those digits in yeah, it. Yeah, so. somebody check that. Yeah. But um, again, can't stress enough to be timely with your forms. Right, Vinay? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you seeing anything else interesting in practice with S-corporations these days, so, M&A? So, you, you know, not, not so much an M&A, but... Um, oftentimes people in their estate planning will leave their shares in a trust. And there's basically only two types of trust that can be um, eligible shareholders of an S corporation. And you got to make sure that's done correctly because again, you could bust your S election if the shares end up in the hands of somebody who is not an eligible shareholder. So again, they're, they're, they're fragile, somewhat fragile, uh, vehicles as corporations because you have to make sure that you always are maintaining that that compliance um, otherwise really by operation of law you cease to become an s corporation you you cease to become an s corporation you become a c corporation now entity level tax right thanks Vinay. this was a lot of fun and i appreciate you coming in here no it, it was a lot of fun you know we didn't really follow like a strict outline that you would see in a tax class or something, but it was just nice to kind of share observations about what each of us sees when clients come to us, you know, with starting a new business and how we can help them. Right. And I know we got the point across that, look, one size doesn't fit all. Every business has its own needs. And these are basically just entities that are available to the client to organize their business. And what may work from a tax and corporate perspective for one may not work or another. And as tax professionals, we listen to the facts, we give them advice from a legal perspective, from an accounting perspective, and a business perspective to help everybody meet their needs. Right. 100%. We're trying to figure out what's going to support the client in the best, best way, looking for the menu of options that we have. Thanks a lot for listening to Tax Tat. I'm your host, Melinda Fellner. See you next time.